0: So we're going to jump right into it this morning. First, we're going to be looking at how this story unfolds, the story of Gideon, and then we're going to try to seek some application together. But before we uh, are introduced to Gideon, we see that the na- there's this context that Gideon comes into this picture here. The nation of Israel, they're basically being buttheads and they're acting up and they're not doing what they should. And jumping straight in, we go to uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they were following other gods, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So Israel is being completely dominated by the Midianites. The Midianites were not so much of an occupying army. They were more... Um, uh, invading marauders. They would just come in. And the text tells us that they would come in like locusts beyond number, and they would devour, and they would scrape everything they could from the land. They would steal the Israelites' livestock. They would steal their scru- their, their crops. And that basically, the Midianites were like this bully stealing a kid's lunch money. Every time Israel would get more, the Midianites would come in, and they would invade, and they would steal all of their livestock and all of their crops, and they would just just take it for themselves. And the text explains why this is happening. God is doing this in order to get their attention because Israel had forsaken God and Israel had begun to serve other gods. Now, I, I think it's important that, we, 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 that I uh, take a minute to sort of explain what's happening here and what's not happening here. That does not mean that every single time that we come against struggles or trials or challenges in our lives, that God is somehow punishing us for our disobedience. I would venture to say the majority of the time, that's not the case. But God, in his loving kindness and in his grace and in his mercy, does allow things to come into our lives to get our attention. And so that's what we see, we're seeing here. God is using, He's given Israel over to the Midianites in order to get their attention, to call them to repentance, to call them back to his, himself. Now, sometimes the fact that sometimes when we suffer, it's explained simply because we live in a broken and a messed up world. But God presents himself as the solution to that. And he sent his son Jesus into this world to come into our brokenness, to give us hope in the midst of what we're going through. And we see here that God has been good to Israel, We know that from the record, that God had been good to Israel, but, but Israel did not honor him and instead turned their backs on him to serve other gods. The crazy part of this is that while this is going on, it takes Israel seven years to turn to God, to cry out to God. Actually, I think it's a better thing to say that it took them seven years to cry out to God because they didn't really turn to God. They didn't really turn to him in repentance, but they cried out to him asking him for help. Because there's a difference between repentance and regret. There's a sorrow that leads to repentance, and there's also the sorrow that we feel that when we're just merely regretful. And sometimes that's because we regret the consequences of our sin. And what we don't regret is the sin itself whereby which we grieved the heart of God and we trampled on his grace and we trampled on his mercy. Regret is very self-centered. I don't like how this is affecting, affecting me. I don't like what's happening in my life. My life is being ruined by these things. And I'm talking about obviously a situation where we've brought it upon ourselves. Repentance causes us to turn to God. And it's about God. It's not about us. It's about turning back to God to be restored into a right relationship with him. And in that place where we turn to him in repentance, we see his patience and his grace, and we receive those things. And so because that's not the case here, because they only turn to God for help, and cried out to him for help, we see here in this text that God then completely cuts off the nation of Israel, right? He completely cuts them off and said, that's it. I've had it. I'm done with you. But that's actually not what happens here. We're told here in, uh, if, in Romans chapter 5, we see how God handles this. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which means God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He calls us to repentance for sure, but he doesn't wait for us to get it straight. He doesn't wait for us to get our act in gear. He doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he initiates our rescue. And we see that fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That doesn't make any sense. Why would he do that? I wouldn't do that. But that's the character and nature of God being revealed. It goes against all logic, but it reveals his grace, his patience. And of course, it reveals, as Romans 8 5 says, or sorry, Romans 5 8 says, it reveals his love that he would die for sinners like you and me. So in response to their cry for help, how does God, what do we see him doing? How does the Lord respond? He responds by sending a prophet. Look at verse uh, uh, eight. And he said to them, thus saith the Lord, this is the prophet speaking, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Basically, what the Lord says here reminds me of what Time Magazine calls Obama's signature phrase. Anyone know what it is? Let me be clear. (laughs) That's what's happening here. I didn't get political. Relax, everybody. But that's what the prophet's saying. He says, let me be clear. This is what happened. That's not what happened. Actually, the prophet is speaking on behalf of God. God is saying, let me be clear. All this is happening for a reason. And it's not the Midianites that are the problem. You're the problem. You have forsaken me, and you have brought this upon yourself. And it's in this context that Gideon comes into the picture. Verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Bezerite while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, we need to take note here that when the angel of the Lord says to Gideon, the Lord is with you, he uses the proper name for the God of Israel, which is Yahweh. So Gideon understands, he understands who the angel of the Lord is referring to. He knows what he's dealing with. And I also want to point out that this is the first, and we will see that this is the first of many statements and clues that God is, has chosen Gideon, that God will ultimately save Israel through Gideon, that God is with Gideon. This is the first of many clues that we will see. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. In response, Gideon is incredulous. Gideon was like, please, have you seen what's happening here? Am I the only one that's paying attention to this? He says in verse 13, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? This is the second major clue, the second major clue that God is with him and is calling him. Notice that the angel of the Lord is referred to as the Lord himself in verse 14. Did you guys catch that? Check it out. Look what he says in verse 13. Look what he says in verse 14. In verse 13, the Lord is being referred to as if he's somebody else by the angel of the Lord. And then in verse 14, it says, the Lord turned to him and said, what is going on here? Who are we talking to? What's happening? This is what is referred to as a Christophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And keep in mind that, that Jesus, and we know this theologically, Jesus is the eternally existing Son of God the second person of the Trinity, he did not come into existence when Mary conceived. I know it, uh, Christmas is coming up and we have this idea of baby Jesus and Mary and Joseph and all that kind of stuff. That's not the beginning of Jesus. Jesus always was. Jesus is eternal. He's the second person of the Trinity. He always was. And here is, he is now appearing to Gideon. Verse 15 And he said to him, this is Gideon speaking, he says, please, Lord, again, using that word, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. In other words, strike them as one man, meaning it's like taking out one person. This is the third major clue, but Gideon still isn't buying it. Verse 17, and he said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes. In other words, really? So if what you're saying is true, and if I were to believe you, let's just say for a second I actually believed you. If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak to me or speak with me. You got to love Gideon, right? Have you ever asked God for a sign? I bet you a bunch of you have. You don't want to admit it. I have, but I generally don't recommend it. We typically do that, right? Lord, I pray that if she loves me like I love her, that she'll say hi to me today at church or whatever. (laughs) But we'll look more at that a little bit when we get into the fleeces. So then what happens is getting... He says, I want, the, I, have, I want you to show me a sign. So he goes, and he prepares a meal for the angel of the Lord, who tells, he brings it out, and he tells him to put it on this rock. And Gideon does as he's told, and the angel of the Lord reaches out with the end of his staff, and he touches the meal with the tip of his staff, and fire springs up from the rock, consuming the meal. And then he just vanishes, and he just disappears from sight. This would be major clue number four. Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. This is a key verse in understanding and interpreting this passage. It's significant because Gideon is now on record as acknowledging who he's dealing with, which makes all... um, Subsequent interaction, rather interesting. And as Gideon has been chatting with the Lord, it turns out that Gideon was actually pretty familiar with the competition. His dad, Gideon's dad, had an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole, these are, both of which were false gods. And, and these were the gods, the false gods that Israel worshiped. And this is the kind of stuff that got Israel in trouble in the first place. And so the Lord tells Gideon to tear down the altar to Baal and to tear down the Asherah pole and then in its place, build an altar to the Lord, which Gideon does in the middle of the night. And in the morning, when the men of the town wake up, they freak out when they see that their false gods have been torn down. They're not too happy about it. They even plot to kill him. But then I guess they get over it because when the Midianites start taking up positions against Israel, verse 34 tells us that the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he was able to take some initial steps to to assemble an army around him, despite the fact that he's a nobody and having just torn down their gods. But he's able to assemble an army. This would be major clue number five. And all this is going on, and apparently Gideon is still unconvinced. He's unconvinced that God is with them, that God will use him to deliver Israel. And this is where the fleeces come in. And if you know the story of Gideon, this is the part you were waiting for, right? This is where the fleeces come in. Verse 36, then God said, uh, no, not God, Gideon. Then Gideon said to God, remember how he's already asked for a sign? The signs in in Judges chapter 6 are not the fleeces. He already asked for that. The fleeces are the do-over. Then Gideon said to God, if you will... Remember, this is doubt being expressed again. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said... In other words, acknowledging that he said this... Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And if there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Pretty cool, right? This is major clue number six. And surely at this point, Gideon is convinced, right? Nope. (laughs) Now Gideon has the guts to ask him to do it in reverse verse 39 then gideon said to god let not your anger burn against me let me speak just once more please let me just once uh, please let me test just once more with the fleece please let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground let there be dew and God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Major clue number seven. You guys keeping count? People often, this is the sad part, people often use this passage as, a biblical, as biblical backing for coming up with all kinds of random litmus tests for determining the will of God or to help them make decisions. I've done that, people in this room have done that. We make references, to or I'm gonna put out a fleece because I have this decision I have to make. And should I take this job? Should I move to this city? Should I move to LA? Should I move away from LA? I'm gonna put out a fleece. Let me just say, this is not a good example to follow. This is not a good example to follow. This is an act, this is not an act of faith, but it's actually an act of doubt. So this is one of the most abused and misunderstood and misinterpreted passages of the Bible. So we shouldn't do that. This is not a great example to follow. But not only is this not a good example to follow, but we know from the context that what's happening here where we steal this idea and we steal this practice has nothing to do with decision-making. Has nothing to do with this decision-making. Gideon was not asking God, should I do this or that? He was was asking, are you really going to do what you said? In other words, he already had direction. He already had the word of the Lord. He already knew what God was calling him to do. And now he's playing these games. We see that in verse 36. Gideon knew exactly what he was doing. And that's why he pleaded with the Lord, please don't be angry with me. Please don't be angry with me. I just want to ask one more time. We see that in verse 39. But obviously, Gideon is clearly still wrestling with significant doubts. Now we come to chapter 7. The story continues. By now, Gideon has assembled an army. He has 32,000 men. Not bad for our nobody that everybody hates. But the problem is, as we're told later on in the story, in chapter 8, there was actually, they were facing 135,000 Midianites. So let's review. Gideon is able to assemble 32,000, and they're up against 135,000. Not awesome odds, right? And the Lord's response is interesting. Because we've got work to do, right? We've only got 32,000 against 135. What's God going to say next? He's going to you know teach us tricks and tactics to like, get more people, right? He's going to pour out his spirit in greater ways. Chapter 7 and verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See what's in the middle of that there? He's making a reference to, to him giving the Midianites into their hand. And he says, the people are too many because they're going to boast. They're going to think they did it. But this is major clue number eight. Verse three, now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let them return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the 32,000, 22,000 of the 32,000 of, 32, of the people returned, leaving just 10,000. Only 10,000 remained. Now, to put this into perspective, I know we've got a bunch of LAFC fans that are part of our church community. Got a couple of whoops over here. Of course, it's Josue, the most introverted guy in the world, and he whoops for the LAFC. <laughs> so to put this in perspective, Josue, you can really picture this, and anyone that's been to the Bank of California Stadium, the number of soldiers that left Gideon's army were equal to the max capacity of the Bank of California Stadium at an LAFC game. What's it like to get out of that place after a game? Tons of people everywhere, right? That's what's happening. Imagine being Gideon and watching all these people leave, (laughs) say bye-bye, single tear, you know, like the whole, like, what is happening? Or if you're not a soccer fan and you're more of a basketball fan, To compare to Staples Center, this is about 3,000 more people than the max capacity of Staples Center at a Laker game. That's how many people just left Gideon. This is completely messed up, right? This is not how you win battles. God, I don't know if you know that. Only 10,000 remained, and they're facing 135,000. Verse 4, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Okay, cool, God, test them for me uh, or not. You know, maybe we just let it go. Maybe we just not do the test. (laughs) Then God conducts a very scientific and a very strategic screening process by way of a drinking game and it's not the kind of drinking game you might be thinking or used to, of the 10,000 that drank the water, 9,700, 9,700 apparently drank the wrong way, leaving Gideon with just 300. And it was with those 300 that God said he would save Israel and give the Midianites into Gideon's hand. Now, in case you're wondering what the significance of testing them, testing how they drank, like what's the significance of that? Because it makes sense that they, you know, he okay, told all the people that were scared to go home, but why is he testing them with how they drink? What's the significance? There is no significance. It wasn't about testing them to make sure that they drank the water in a tactically sound way. We already know from the text that God is simply wanting to reduce the size of Gideon's army, and that's simply what's going on here. And verse 7, it says, And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, in other words, drank the right, the right way, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Major clue number nine. So Gideon had his mighty 300 that will face 135,000. And I think we actually have an artist's rendering of one of those 300. <laughs> Brutal, right? (laughs) Contrary to what is depicted in this picture, they are not to be an elite force. They are, by design, supposed to be an inadequate force. So much so that when they are victorious, as we've already learned from the text, it will be clear that it was not them that brought the victory, but God. Verse nine, the same night the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. There's another promise, right? Major clue number 10. So God says, if you're scared, go down, go down to the camp, but if you're scared, take a friend with you, the buddy system happening, take a friend with you and sneak down there and eavesdrop, and I have a feeling you're gonna like what you hear. So Gideon sneaks down to the camp and overhears a man telling his buddy about a dream that he had that disturbed him. And his buddy interprets the dream, which is basically that Gideon is going to be victorious over them. Major clue number 11. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Weird. Is there an echo in here? We've heard that before, right? That God will be giving, God will give Midian into their hand. And so Gideon then divides the 300 into three companies of 100 each and gives each man a trumpet and a jar with a torch in it, and he tells them to watch for his signal. Verse 19 So Gideon and the hundred men who were with them came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran and they cried out and fled. And what happens next in the chaos and in the confusion, the Midianites basically start killing one another. And now we know why God didn't need an army larger than 300. And suddenly all this makes sense, and it turns out God actually knows what he's doing. What, incredible, what an incredible and fascinating story, right? This crazy story of God using and God calling a nobody who was not gonna win any popularity contest, and he calls him. He says, I see you as the man you're gonna be, maybe not the man that you are. He finds him hiding in a wine press threshing wheat, which is like the worst place in the world to be able to thresh wheat. And I can explain to you after if you're really curious about why. That's not germane to the story. Um, and, and he uses this guy to, to deliver Israel, who the Spirit of God comes upon. He's able to gather 32,000 fighters. Then that gets reduced to 10,000, and then it gets reduced to 300, and God uses them against the Midianites to, 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 to deliver Israel. Now, but in spite of the fact that Gideon needed Eleven major clues, or not, not in spite of, but because Gideon, Gideon was so racked with doubt, and because he needed God to continually reveal His plan to him, a lot of people give Gideon a lot of grief, and I used to be one of them. Like, what is wrong with you? Because we have the benefit of just reading the story; we don't, we're not in Gideon's shoes. We have the benefit of reading the story, and we sit in judgment. What is your problem? What more could the Lord have possibly done to make it crystal clear to you that he was calling you, and he was going to use you, and you were going to defeat the Midianites? But the more I sit with the story, the more I have understanding and compassion for Gideon. I think we can all relate to Gideon. We find ourselves wrestling with doubts at various times for various reasons. And there are two things that stand out to me that help me understand Gideon's doubts. First, the obvious is circumstances. All through the story, there are circumstances that might cause anyone to wrestle with doubts. Israel's in a bad situation. And and Gideon, looking around and paying attention, had come to the conclusion that God had evidently abandoned them. We see that in uh, verse 13 of chapter six. And then Gideon was was only able to muster up an army that was significantly outnumbered. God reduces that army first by 22,000, and then he reduces them again by 9,700 to a measly 300 to face 135,000 Midianites. Wouldn't that make you question? Wouldn't that make you doubt? Wouldn't that make you fear? I would be freaking out. And if God was trying to convince Gideon that he had no reason to doubt, then this is a pretty strange way of doing it. But that's only if Gideon's faith was supposed to be in his army and in their ability, which it wasn't, and that's the point. Another thing, when, when, when God, in, in this situation, in these circumstances, when Gideon started to see God working, did things get better or did they get worse? They got worse. And so in just looking at Gideon's circumstances alone, I can understand why he wrestled with so much doubt. And in addition to his circumstances, the second thing I see that helps me understand his doubt is that it would seem that he didn't really know God very well. He didn't really know God very well. I know we have this idea that Gideon's in Hebrews chapter 11, he's a hero of the faith and all these things, but if we look at the text and we sit with the text, it seems to indicate that he doesn't know God that well. Think about it. The text tells us that Gideon had heard only the stories from previous generations about God's goodness and his faithfulness and his deliverance. It was all in the past, not something that he had ever personally experienced. Remember when he challenged the angel of the Lord? If the Lord's with us, why is this happening to us? And where's all the stories? Where's God considering all the stories that we've heard? Also, we know from the text that Gideon was apparently raised in a home where the Lord was not worshipped, right? Hence the altars to Baal and Asherah. And he was, he grew up and lived within a culture where the Lord was not worshipped either. They worshiped Baal and Asherah. So the worship of the Lord was not the norm. So I would suggest that Gideon didn't trust God because he didn't know God. And this is possibly why we see God being so gracious and patient with him. God was revealing himself to Gideon. Remember what happened when God called Moses? God called Moses, and Moses was like, wait, 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 I don't know, I don't know, I'm I'm not really interested, no thanks. What was God's response? God's response was a little bit different. The Bible says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses knew better. Gideon didn't. There's definitely a different way that God is responding to a very similar situation. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't know God at all, or if you don't know Him very well, I want you to know that no one here is going to look down their nose at you. No one here is going to look down their nose at you. And I want you to know that God loves you more than you could ever imagine and he wants to do an incredible work in your life. And I think those of us that have walked with God for any length of time need to keep that in mind. It's easy for us to get frustrated with people that are maybe newer believers, or someone that we think should know better, because they're part of our church. And why are they doing this? And why are they doing that? And we get on their case. and We get all weird. We start pointing fingers. We start judging. All those sorts of things. (laughs) But God is being gracious and compassionate and patient with Gideon as we see him wrestling with these doubts. He didn't believe what God said about Gideon. He said, you're a mighty man of valor, and I'm going to use you. Gideon didn't believe what um, God said about himself. He said, I'm with you, and I'm going to deliver you. He didn't believe what God said about the promised outcomes, that Israel would be, would be saved. So when we see Gideon wrestling with this stuff, and even as we think through some of the doubts that we wrestle with and the things that we go through, the question is, how do we overcome doubt? How do we overcome doubt? Number one, the number one way, something that, not, it's not ranked, it just happens to be the order I put it in, okay? relax how do we overcome doubt? Number one, accept our doubts as real. Number one, accept our doubts as real. We don't need to fake it. Doubt is a real thing. And there will be times where we're going to have doubts. Though we, but here's the thing. Though we accept them as real, though we accept our doubts as real, we should not regard them as acceptable. We accept them as real, but we should not regard them as accept- acceptable because we don't want to stay that way. We don't want to stay that way. And sometimes when we're accepting our doubts as real and we're even being honest about those things and even articulating those things, sometimes in our honesty, we're more concerned about it being a cathartic experience than we are actually overcoming those doubts, well, I'm just struggling, you know. I just don't believe God and and all these things, and we just sit in that spot. And it's okay to wrestle with these things. It's okay in the sense that it happens. We live in a broken world, but we don't want to sit there. We don't want to stay there. We want to accept our doubts as real, but we don't want to regard them as acceptable. Jesus, and this is how we know this, Jesus is always desiring to change us and to transform us and to mold us, and to shape us more into his likeness. And he enters into our brokenness so that we can have hope in the midst of what we're going through. Another way to overcome doubt. Number two, embrace the tension. Let me explain. In Mark chapter nine, there's a story of a man who loved his son, and his son was possessed by an unclean spirit, and this man was desperate to see his son helped, and he brings his son to Jesus' disciples, but they're unable to help him. So then he comes to Jesus and he says, help me, help my son. And he says this, he says, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. He believed that Jesus could help his son, but he still wrestled with doubt and fear. And that, is what it looks like to doubt faithfully, if I can put it that way. Can you relate? You know those times where there's just something that you're completely stressed out about, and you're not sure how God's going to come through? You're not sure how things are going to end up? And you're like, oh, but there's this, and this is what's stressing me out, and this is what's disturbing me, and this is what I'm concerned about, and this is why I have all these doubts, and I don't know how it's going to end up. And on the other hand, it's like, oh, but you know, you know, God's faithful and he's good and all those sorts of things. And we don't know how to keep those two things in balance. We've got to embrace the tension. And the problem is when we don't embrace the tension, what ends up happening is we either drown in our doubts or we become dismissive of our doubts and we pretend they're not there. We've got to embrace the tension dealing honestly with the reality of our lives, but also keeping hold of the fact that God loves us and he's faithful and that he's good. We've got to embrace the tension. This means that even when we're wrestling with this stuff, even in the midst of challenges, we can have faith. We can have faith even in the midst of this stuff. And let me say to you, Today, what I feel that God said to me this week. You ready? Get ready to write this down. Face reality, but follow me. Face reality, but follow me. That is what embracing the tension looks like. Because I've got doubts. There's stuff in my life that I've been wrestling with. And I have to just keep reminding myself that God's got this. And I feel sometimes like even when I express some of those things I wrestle with, sometimes other people will say to me or even I'll even say to myself, well, don't worry about it. You can trust God. It's super dismissive, right? I'm like, no, but like, there's this situation. It's like a real thing. And what this allows us to do by embracing the intention is it allows us to be super honest about those things and try to understand those things in light of God's faithfulness. So I would suggest what we've got to do is embrace the tension. Face reality, but follow Jesus anyway. Wrestle through those things, but continue to follow and to serve and to live for Jesus and sometimes it's these real issues that we go through, these real things that we experience that help redirect us back to Jesus because we can get a little too comfortable at times when things are going smoothly. And, and I found that God in his grace and in his mercy uses these times to draw us into greater intimacy with him the time where i have experienced that the most the the most um, i don't know how to describe it the most amazing closeness i've ever had with god when i was going through was when i was going through some of the most difficult times in my life because those difficult times and it was a handful of years ago some of you remember when i was going through all kinds of health issues but it was in those times that just They made me turn to Jesus. It made me run to Jesus. And God ministered to me in the most amazing ways. The third way to overcome doubt, number three, is confront with the truth. We need to, and this is all related to everything I've just said, right? Especially when we're embracing the tension. We need to identify what is a lie. And we need to identify what is true. The doubt and fear that we feel is real and should not be dismissed, but it is often wrong. The doubt and fear that we feel is real and should not be dismissed, but it is often wrong. We see that in Gideon's life. Quite often we doubt because we're believing lies. Gideon concluded, well, you're not with us, you've forsaken us, and God's like, nope, I've been here the whole time. You may have been waiting for me for seven years. Guess what? Yoo-hoo, I've been waiting for you. God had never left them. So we need to confront doubts with the truth. The fourth and final way we overcome doubt is we run to Jesus. Run to Jesus This is the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So what we need to do as we run to Jesus is we need to allow Jesus to speak louder than our fear, louder than our doubts, and louder than our circumstances. Because all those things are preaching at us, right? Our doubts and fears, and our circumstances are saying one thing to us. And we need to allow Jesus to speak to us louder than those things. There's a saying that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And it's not just a saying. It's a truth. It's the truth we need to cling to. So this is what I'd say. In running to Jesus, get to know him. Get to know Jesus. He is revealed in Scripture. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself for us. And you know what? If you even if you borrowed one of our Bibles today, keep it. Get into it. Find Jesus in it. He reveals himself to us in his word. He speaks of himself. He speaks of how he fulfills his promises and how everything he says is true. Jesus can be found in scripture. In Psalm 34, verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. There's stuff we don't understand. There's crap we go through. But the Lord is good. And blessed is the man, or woman obviously, who takes refuge in him. There's an interesting story in John chapter 20. After the resurrection of Jesus, he appears to his disciples. But there was one of his followers named Thomas who wasn't there. And he didn't see Jesus appear to them. And he hears about it later and he says, nah, nah unless I see it with my own two eyes, unless I place my finger in the holes of his hands that were made by the nails, unless I see it and I touch his hands, I won't believe it. Eight days later, Jesus appears to his disciples again. And guess what? Thomas is there. And what does Jesus say to Thomas? You idiot! <laughs> nope. Nope. Jesus is like, come check me out. Come here. Jesus invites us to come to him. When we're wrestling with doubt and we're all messed up with all this stuff, Jesus is saying, come to me. Come check me out. You doubt? You're weary? You're worried? You're fearful? Come check me out. Again, Midianites dominating Israel. They're waiting for God. God's waiting for them. We can, Jesus is inviting us into a relationship with him. And we see that Gideon finally comes around and lets God do his thing in his life. And that's why Gideon is commended for his faith in Hebrews 11. He simply accepted what God said was true about Gideon, about himself, and about his circumstances, and in faith followed after God, was obedient in faith, and he's commended for his faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And Gideon becomes a great example of obedient faith as we see how God uses someone who is weak, fearful, doubting, who discovered that he could trust the outcomes to God. What are the things that you're wrestling with? What are the outcomes you're wrestling with? And as I say that to you, I say that to me. Like, what are the things that I need to just entrust to God? How can I in this moment, how can you in this moment embrace the tension of the reality of our fears while still following God? If you're doubting this morning, I would invite you to come to Jesus. If you believe but you're wrestling with doubt, same thing. I'd invite you to come to Jesus. You might be thinking, well, what about this and what about that? And Jesus is on the cross saying, what about this? And then he points to the empty tomb and he says, what about that? Spoiler alert, I win in the end. And it's because of all of that, what Jesus accomplished for us, that we know He will take care of all of our stuff. So, whether your doubts are rooted in your circumstances or in who God is and what He's promised, You just need to look to Jesus. You just need to look to Jesus. We all need to look to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray.